So we are continuing in our, our Peacemaker series and learning God's way of handling conflict. And so today we're going to look at a conflict, really the first major church-wide conflict that took place within the church. And I want to start by telling you about um, my first interaction in a previous church with Thelma. Thelma was head of the Women's Guild, and she came uh, to my office and wanted to let me know about a tradition they had at that church, and she started off our conversation with, you can change this when I'm dead. I'm like, okay. Um, So the tradition, though, was not a bad one. It was the last Sunday of the year, they would do a memorial service. It it was the Women's Guild headed it up, and that in times past, they would have a women's luncheon, and they would remember the women of the church who had died in the last year. Over time, it became something that was part of the service. The luncheon didn't happen, and so they just did it in the service. They would remember the women of the church who had died in the last year. And I said, Thelma, that's great. I, actually, we did something that at another church, and I'd seen that, and I wanted to do a memorial service. I, I just want to make sure, of course, we include the men that had died from the church in the last year, that we do both. Thelma wasn't in favor of that. And um, it went, it became a bit of a thing, and I was pretty strongly pushing for having a memorial service where we do both remember the, both the men and the women. I thought it would be kind of almost wrong to, to, to do one, and then, you know, if you lost your, but let's say you lost both your father and your mother in the same year, that you would remember one and not the other. And, and one of the wiser church leaders suggested that we, we not make the change this year and that we give it some time and let the Women's Guild do their tradition, and that eventually, uh, basically what happened is, is eventually the Women's Guild themselves decided that, you know what, we really should make this change. And letting them come to that conclusion on their own rather than forcing the issue for me as a new pastor. And so it, that's how it played out. Um, Thelma still wasn't happy, and so it's okay. Uh, We're talking today about how to work through these difficult situations. Sometimes it happen in the church. They happen all all parts of our life, including within, between Christians. And the the idea that that I want to get across is that when we're doing these these peacemaking things, we need to, to both resolve the issue, right? There's usually an issue that's a conflict, but that's not in itself enough. We also have to reconcile the relationships, and that's a key part of it. You see, us pastors, right, we tend to see things through a theological lens. We, we went to seminary, and we learned theology and church history and we learn how to study the Bible. And so what, what do we want to do when there's a conflict? I want to find a Bible verse that gives the answer 
for this, this conflict. How frustrated do you think I get when most of the conflicts that take place are really relationship-oriented, and there's no one verse that can solve it all? Um, that's what we tend to do. And, and lo and behold, the first church-wide conflict that takes place in the Scriptures is such a conflict. Um, it is more about relationships. And, and so Peter and the other apostles, right, they had been trained by Jesus to preach the gospel. He had sent them out. He had given them the, the, the word to go forth. And lo and behold, they have this conflict in the, the, the early church, and it's about bread. It's about the distribution of bread. So let's, let's look at Acts, Acts 6. It starts off with, now in these days... The disciples were increasing in number, which means the church is growing. It was good. And, um, but there was a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So i got to do some explaining. The first conflict was over this distribution of bread to, for widows. It start off in these days. The early church was made up of really all, completely all Jewish believers in Jesus, right? People who had grown up Jewish, who had put their faith in Jesus, and they were all in, at that point, the city of Jerusalem. The apostles had come to Jerusalem with, with Jesus and other followers, and they felt like they needed to stay in Jerusalem because God was doing a major work, and people were coming to Jerusalem. Jews were coming to Jerusalem and hearing the word and, and meeting them. So rather than going back to their hometowns, and for much of the early apostles, they were from Galilee, up in the north. Um, others were, were from all parts of the Roman Empire. Rather than, than doing that, they were staying together in the city that was not their home base. And so they were meeting together in the temple and, and doing all kinds of stuff. They, they weren't necessarily growing their food. They, they weren't able, they weren't planting fields. And so they were getting by. Different people would sell things, like sell plots of land, and give the money, and the church would use that money to make bread every day. And that's how they were getting by. It was like an extended camp meeting in this particular time in the church in those days. And God was using it. And so you can especially imagine the, the widows, those who had no means of support themselves, being very reliant upon this daily distribution. And the word that it used in Greek is the diakonia. The diakonia. It just means the service. And so the diakonia of bread, and those of you who know that today we have a diaconate, it's, it's the same idea. It's the deacons are the ones who help with practical needs, the diaconia. And so that was the daily distribution that it called. Now there's a, a second thing you need to know is that there were kind of growing two groups within this early church, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The, the who's and the who's, the what, what, what's it going on? So... In, in its history, in Israel, the Jews had oftentimes been cast out of the city, and they call it the diaspora. And so different 
seasons of their history, Jews would, would leave Jerusalem and they'd settle in communities. And so in all the major cities of the Roman Empire in the Eastern and Western world, um, there were, were communities of Jews who stayed faithful to the, 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 the Bible, they stayed faithful to the Lord, and they would come back to Jerusalem at times for the festivals to worship. But their home base was in these, these cities in the Hellenistic world. Hellenism is another word, basically means Greek. Hellas is Greece. So the Hellenists spoke as their primary language Greek. Greek was like the English of its day, right? In all, all the, you know, currently in all the major places in the world, people speak English as the language. It was Greek in that, the Roman Empire. The Hebrews were people who grew up in the traditional Holy Land, either in Jerusalem or many of them came from up in Galilee where Jesus had grown up, where the disciples, if you're watching The Chosen, right, that's all taking place up in Galilee. And so the disciples, many of the, um, them were, were Hebrew was their main language. And that's how they, they taught. So you had the Hebrews and the Hellenists. They spoke different languages. The, the Hebrew people were, tended to be the ones who had been in the church longer. They had been alive when Jesus, they had been with Jesus when he had been alive. The Hellenists came to faith later through the preaching in Jerusalem. And now we see the conflict. So, who's going to figure out this conflict? Well, you have the 12. Well, down to 11 after Judas. But, so it's, it's these guys. From, if you, again, if you, watch the, if you haven't watched The Chosen, it's a, it's a story, tells a story about Jesus and his disciples. It's excellent. Um, I'm still working on season one, but I'd encourage you, but, they, they show you how the different disciples start to follow Jesus. So these are the guys who have to figure this out. So we're going to figure it out this morning. And so I declare you all are the Hellenists from this side over. You are those who speak Greek as your primary language, and you are the ones who come with the complaint. You all are the, the Hebraists, the, he, the Hebrew background people. And so you are, many of you came from Galilee, down to Jerusalem, and you've been with Jesus the longest, includes the, the, the original disciples. So, what's your complaint? Your complaint is, our widows are being neglected, overlooked in the daily distribution of bread. Well, what, what's your response? And you see in verse 2, the, the Peter says, you know, our main job is the preaching of the word. We don't want to miss out on the preaching of the word to, to focus on, on serving tables, right? So that's, that's this response. Well, how do you guys respond to that, right? What might you say? Well, God commands us to care for the widows and the orphans. It's in the word, right? And what would, might you say, Right? The church is growing. We must be doing good things, right? The church people are, new people are meeting, meeting, and it's our job to teach them what Jesus said. And then you guys might reply, don't you care about Phoebe and Dorcas, right? These widows have been overlooked. They, they went without food a couple days. And what might you say? 
don't you care about Peter? They were working their tails off all day long, and they're exhausted every day. How do they have time to, to deal with bread? Can you imagine this? Like, this is real stuff. These are the kind of conflicts churches have. And you can imagine hard feelings and hard things being said. Um, Acts doesn't go into details about all of that, but the complaints are out there, and they've got to figure it out. And how, what will they do? So we find out in verse 2, the 12, hearing these complaints, they summon the full number of disciples. They, they're able at that point to have, have one big church meeting. And they, they lay out the issues. There's the complaint that the, the, um, they need, the, uh, the widows are being overlooked, but also how we can't give up, neglect the preaching of the word um, to, to fix this. And so what do they do? They explain the issues. Imagine people had a chance to express what their, their feelings were, why this was a problem. The issues get aired, and people have a chance to, to share what's going on. They take time to listen. That's key. And then they come up with a resolution. And we see in verses 3 and, and on what, what that resolution is, it's the resolution is simple. They're going to pick out new people who will take charge of the daily distribution. Therefore, it won't be on the shoulders of the apostles. New leaders and and it will be seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Who picks the seven? The Hellenists do. They pick out the ones. So why is that important? One is they, they get a say, right? They, get, they have a role in it. We already have most of the leaders are on this side of the room. Most of the leaders, the apostles, are ones who, who are the Hebrew speakers. So now it's including the newer people in the leadership and running of the church in a very practical way. They would be the first deacons because they'll do the diaconia. Moreover, you know, well, would, would that mean the Hebrew widows get neglected? Not likely because if they would want to make sure that they covered all the widows, Right, Because they wouldn't want to be prone to the same complaint that they themselves had made. So they'd be careful that, that everyone um, received bread that needed it and, and everyone had a chance. And if you look through the list later, I love how you know, Doug had a chance to read all those, those names. Um, they're all Greek-type names. They're not Hebrew-type names. So they picked out those who had Greek-type names. One of them was even not Jewish eth ethnically. He was a, a convert to Judaism, a proselyte. And so when they had them all, then the disciples, the apostles, laid hands on them, confirmed them as leaders within the church. What was the ultimate result? Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. God was glorified. More people came to faith. Probably because the apostles are actually now more freed up to do their ministry and their work. New leaders were developed. In fact, two of them, Stephen and Philip, would play key roles in the church going forward. They would actually help extend the gospel 
into new areas. Even though their, their charge was to, to, to dole out the bread, they actually ended up getting into spiritual ministry and preaching themselves. And then there's this, this line. This is, this is fascinating. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Why is that? Well, the priests were those who served at the temple in Jerusalem so they could observe what's going on. And these are the religious professionals. Could it be that they were like impressed at how such a, a difficult issue is handled with such grace? Like, could it be that they're like, because they actually worked through a difficult issue and came to a solution? Like, because they know how things normally happen in religious circles, right? And they were like, wow, this could actually work because of Jesus. So that's, that's my theory on that, is the, that's why the priest suddenly said, yes, I'm, I'm, if, if, we, if you could do this kind of miracle, I'm on board. And the priest joined in in the new faith in Jesus. So there, there will be times of conflict and disagreements in our life, including within the church. And interestingly enough, they actually can be times to, to glorify God and to, to honor him in the way we handle it. It's not, it's not that you'll ever have a place where there's no conflict. There's always going to be disagreements on how to approach things, how to handle things, how to solve things. Um, but the ultimate go- happening ultimate thing is that God can be glorified in how those are resolved. In working on them, you have to keep in mind the difference between positions versus interests. A position is the, the, where you, you and your, your group decide we should do this. That's your position. And we can get locked into a position within an argument, right? You say, I do this. This is our position. Their position is opposite. Right? It's, we should, um, the, the apostles should, should feed the, you know, give out the, should not neglect the widows in the distribution. And the other side is the apostles are already too busy. So, right, each has their position. And if you're set on winning the argument, you're, you're focused on getting your position met. And instead of, you can end up digging in. What we're calling to do and what we've talked about doing is instead of just digging into the horizontal, it's stepping out and considering the vertical. How can we glorify God in this situation? And, and what we need to do is listen to one another so that we understand the interests behind the position. What's, what's actually going on? What are they actually looking for? Not just what they say they want, but what's the interest behind it? What's driving them to that position. So in the Peacemaker video, they tell a story of a a Lutheran church, and they were working with them. And in the Lutheran church, they they had communion at the rail, which means, do we have some Lutherans here, Lutheran background people? Okay. You may may know this, that in some Lutheran churches, they will come up and the, the priest will individually give you the bread and the cup, and you will kneel at the, the altar rail, and you will receive communion that way. Some people said, we want to make it different and just distribute communion in the seats like many churches do, and said, we want to stop doing that. And one of the women in the, the church, middle-aged woman, said, no, we don't want to do that. 
In fact, that would be dishonoring to the elders, to the the elder people in our church who had handed down this tradition, and we should uphold that. And another woman, middle-aged woman, no, we got to make this change. And they asked the question, what do the older people in church want? And it turned out that the older people actually were having knee troubles. And many of them were saying, no, we actually are ready to give up this tradition. And it was they weren't the ones intent on doing it. And when the, the woman who was saying we need to honor our elders found out that many of the elderly were like having knee troubles and didn't want to, didn't want to have to kneel, then the interest changed, right? They had, they had their position, but when they found out the interest behind it, the interest was we need to honor those who established this church and set up these traditions. The interest then became we can honor them by, by making communion easier for them. That's the difference between position and interest. Philippians 2 talks about how we, we interact with one another within the church ways. It says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. So it's talking about all the things we have because we know Jesus, because he's in our life. We have compassion. We have this fellowship of the spirit. We have all these things in our hearts. Paul's saying then, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having that same love we've experienced from God, having that towards those around you. Being one in spirit and in in one mind. It's saying seek the unity of the church. Have that mind amongst you that that our, our goal is to glorify God. As we have been blessed, so we want to bless others. So our first challenge is glorify God above all else. That is the most important thing in my my life, the most important thing we do in any any challenge. The second is value people. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Check your motives, but in humility, value others above yourselves. Value people over your position. We can get in a mode where our goal is to win the argument. I've been there. I've done it. I love to win arguments, right? I, I can debate, and, and I need to remember people are more important than just winning another argument. People value the people around you. Consider um, in humility, oh, that's hard. Isn't that the issue? When you want to win an argument, yeah, you want to, show, you want to be shown right. You want them to acknowledge that you are right. In humility. Value others above yourselves, right? They matter more than than me winning this argument. And then it says, so value people and then look to the interests of others. Look not only to your own interests. It's not that you neglect your own interests. It's not that you just, well, whatever you want, we'll do. No, your interests are in there too, but you don't look only to your own interests. You also consider the interests of others. You get behind the positions and look at the interests. What, what, what's, what, what do people need to, to see this work well for them? So that's 
the, the game plan in, in resolving the issues that lead to conflict. But it's not the end game. Can you imagine a situation? Can you imagine our, our little uh, diaconia argument they had? That if, well, once they came to that solution, what if people still had hard feelings about how it happened? They were still angry. Well, I, I still can't believe they, they didn't care about our widows. Or I still can't believe they, they never acknowledged how hard we worked at, at all the stuff we're doing. What if both sides still felt resentment and anger towards one another um, even after the issue was resolved? It, still, it would have thrown apart the church if people didn't care for and trust one another. So you not only have to resolve the issue, it's vital that you, you um, reconcile the relationships. The thing that is absolutely necessary is forgiveness. We are called to forgive one another. I want us to, to show a, a video, I think, that captures this idea of, of the need for forgiveness. No, I gotta go. I gotta go. Hey, Phil! Phil! You got a minute? Hey, can I talk to you about yesterday? Sure. Go ahead. Look, I, uh, I lost my temper yesterday. I know I did. I know I did. I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have yelled at you. I, I know you didn't mean to be late, okay? It's just that we're running behind and on quota. And, but, but anyway, I shouldn't have done it. And I'm sorry. You know why I was late, right? Okay, it was a doctor's visit. There's nothing I can do about it. Phil, believe me, man, I was out of line. I'm, I'm sorry. Will you, will you forgive me? I'm sure. Let's just forget about it, okay? Phil, are you are you sure? It's fine. Okay? We're cool. All right. Okay. Sorry. Hey, honey, how's it going? Oh, yeah? Good, good. I'm glad you got that taken care of. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, he came by. I saw him this morning. But it went okay. Yeah, I mean, he apologized. He said he was sorry for yelling and everything. So, yeah, I think we're good. You know, he just made me look so stupid in front of the other people, you know? He has no right to do that. It's, it's not like he's my supervisor or anything. Yeah, and you know what? I'm just going to stay out of his way. You know, I think that's the best thing. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Hey, I'll see you tonight, okay? All right. I love you, too. Bye-bye. Hey, Bethany, how's it going? Hey, I'm good. How you doing? I'm okay. Busy week, huh? Mm-hmm. Hey, Alan kind of lost it a little bit there yesterday, huh? Yeah, especially in front of everyone else. You guys okay? I think so. I mean, we talked about it. I mean, you know what gets me is how he acts like he runs this whole place. Okay, and he's just like the rest of us. Okay, we're all doing the same job. So why does he feel like he can just unload on all of us whenever something goes wrong, huh? I know, I think there's a lot going on with the baby and everything. He's having a pretty hard time at the moment. He isn't normally like this. Yeah, maybe, but he still shouldn't be taking that out on us. But I gotta run, but I'll see you later, okay? See you later. Hey, man, how's it going? Hey, Phil, I'm fine. Quick question for you. 
we're uh, we're doing these overtime rosters, and we're going to need some weekend cover for yeah. next month. How's that look for you? Uh, it's not looking good at all. Uh, Tim's got games every Saturday, and that's for six more weeks. So, not all good. Right. You, you can't make one work. Nope. Sorry, man. All right. Hey, so are you coming on Friday? No, I'm pretty busy Friday also, so that's not a very good day either. I've got a lot to do, staying pretty busy, so sorry about that. Hey, Phil, are we are we cool? You seem a little distant, a little no, off. we're fine, man. I'm just so busy. You know how it is. Was it about Monday? Have, have you not forgiven me for that? I mean, no. look, I said I'm sorry. I don't look, know what else to we're do. We're good. We're good. I'm just so busy. and No worries, okay? We're fine. So, okay. Get back to all this inventory and... Okay. We're cool. All right. Thanks. Wish you were coming on Friday. Cool. How does he show they're not, he has not really forgiven them? Talked about it with others? Kind of still complaining about it. Shortness. Yep. Didn't really want to talk to him. Wouldn't hang out with him. Avoiding him. Being distant. Yeah, there, there's still there's still resentment and, and a re broken relationship there, isn't there? Here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is a decision modeled after God's forgiveness of us, a decision not to hold an offense against the offender. So it's a decision modeled after God's forgiveness of us, a decision not to hold an offense against the offender, and we are commanded to forgive. We're, we're not, it's not optional. It's, it says forgive as the Lord forgave you. We have been forgiven. God did not hold against us the sins by which we should rightly be judged. Instead, he gave us forgiveness through Jesus. We pray to forgive, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And a few weeks back, we looked at a parable Jesus told about what happens when we don't forgive, when we continue to har harbor anger. It's like we're in a prison. It's like, it's like being in that prison of anger and resentment and grudges. Forgiveness should be the hallmark of Christians because we are the most forgiven people in the world. I would bet each and every one of us here still struggles with forgiving other people at times. It can be hard. And, and Christians, as much as anybody, can struggle with bitterness and un unforgiveness towards others. Let's talk about what forgiveness is not before we kind of get into furthermore what it is. So forgiveness is, first of all, not a feeling. You don't always feel forgiving towards someone another. Note, it is a decision. Now, it's a decision that will lead to different feelings over time. But the feelings aren't always there at first. It's a decision not to hold an offense against the offender. Second, forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. I know they say forgive and forget, but that, that's not necessarily what we're commanded to do. In fact, forgiveness isn't a matter of whether we forget, 
but more of how we remember. It's how we think of the offense going forward, how we remember what happened. We're, we're, we're adding grace to our memory in the way we think about it. Third thing, forgiveness is not excusing or condoning the behavior. It doesn't mean we say what they did didn't matter. Um, it didn't, you know, oh, it's no big deal. It might have been a big deal. And in fact, there's times we might have to express. And maybe what our friend in the video needed to say is, man, when you did that, I felt really stupid. And that, that, that bothered me. Maybe he needed to express how he felt because in the offense before he was able to forgive it. The fourth thing, forgiveness is not the same as trust. In the, the, DV, the peacemaker training, they talk about a woman who says she didn't want to forgive her uncle for abusing her because then she, she thought she'd have to leave her kids with him. He says, no, absolutely not. Forgiveness is not the same as trust. You can forgive, but not necessarily trust that, that person yet. Trust can be earned. It often is earned. You know, it may be you could be forgiven if you've embezzled money as the treasurer of your local organization, but you probably won't be trusted again to, to, that, to that kind of position. Right? It, you could be forgiven, but not necessarily trust, trusted. So that's what forgiveness is not. Let's look more at the details of how forgiveness works. And, and there's really, it's a two-stage or two-component thing process. Dispositional forgiveness is what I would call the heart component. It's, it's forgiveness, it's the decision in our heart to forgive the other person, to release the offense to God and to give up thoughts of revenge. It is a decision we make. We decide we will wish them well and not ill. We decide that we will pray for them and, if possible, seek reconciliation. It, it's a decision we make to, to do this. We decide we're not going to let their behavior determine our own mental state, our own, our own decisions. We are free to forgive, and so we choose to do it. Unforgiveness is, is holding on to that. It's holding on to desires for revenge. It's holding on to resentment and anger. There's a quote that says, Unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping someone else will die. Right? Unforgiveness holds us in a prison. Unforgiveness is, it, it doesn't do damage to them, it's doing damage to us. So forgiveness is this opportunity to to release that offense to God. That's dispositional forgiveness. Transactional forgiveness is the relational component. So there's the heart component and the relational component. So having settled the manner in our heart, we seek to grant forgiveness to the offender conditional upon their acknowledgement and repentance. That's where we talked about going to the person and talking to them about what what they had done, and how it affected us. And, and this is when the other person owns up to what they've done, when they confess and they, they say they're sorry or however, then we are free to extend forgiveness, 
releasing them from the offense, and enjoying a restored relationship. That is transactional forgiveness. If you've done dispositional forgiveness, it, it says you're saying you're open to transactional. Right? You can't say, well, I'll just do the first part and not do the second because then you're not really forgiving. But transactional forgiveness is dependent upon the other person. And it, it may not be completed if they refuse to acknowledge, if they are unrepentant. Why well, did it so what? Or maybe they're gone. Maybe they're died. They have died. Just because they're unrepentant or they're gone now doesn't mean you have to be held within the prison of unforgiveness. You are still free to dispositionally forgive and release that offense. But, um, so there are times when the transactional forgiveness may not be completed. But, but for full reconciliation, it does take both people. And that's the ideal of when forgiveness is made complete. So let me tell you about Chris Carrier. As, as a, a 10-year-old boy, there's a, a man who had a grudge against his father and took it out on Chris that he stabbed him with an ice pick, ended up taking him out into the middle of nowhere, shooting him in the head, and um, left him to die in, in the, the middle of nowhere. And miraculously, Chris survived. He was unconscious for six days. He woke up, somehow survived it. The, the bullet went through the back of his head out one eye. So he would be, you could see how he's blind in one eye. He survived. Um, and they thought they knew who had done it. There was a suspect right away, David McAllister. But they could never get enough evidence to convict him. Because as a 10-year-old, he, could, he didn't know, he couldn't identify and so the case went unsolved for 22 years. A detective later saw the, the, the situation and decided he wanted to try to bring closure to this. David McAllister by then had gone into a nursing home. He was old, frail, um, blind himself. And, and so the detective went and talked to him and said, there, there's no more consequences. We're not going to take you to trial. Just tell us whether you did it or not. And finally, he, he confessed. And so Chris was told, and he went to see David in the nursing home. And when, when David owned up to the offense, what he did, Chris had forgiven him and said actually long before he had given up that resentment in his heart and decided to not let that rule his life. And he was actually a youth pastor and, and serving in ministry himself and, and then later as a teacher. And so David, the, the, the guy, was dying. Chris, in his last year, would go visit him in the nursing home and bring him gifts and, and befriended him. That's what forgiveness can look like dispositional, heart forgiveness, and transactional reconciliation. There are four promises in forgiveness. Here's what forgiveness comes down to saying. Here's what you're saying when you say, I forgive you. You're saying, I promise I will not dwell on this incident. 
doesn't mean necessarily you, you can forget it, but you're not going to dwell on it. You're not going to live in that incident. Second promise, I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. Right? In the video, he kept bringing up that incident with others. Well, that's the third promise. I promise I will not talk to others about this incident. Right? So you, you bring it up with others. You're saying, no, I'm not going to do that. This is done between you and I. I'm not going to hold this in my back pocket to use later. And then the fourth promise, um, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. It's in the past. We're still going to be friends. That's what we're saying when we say, I forgive you. The four promises of forgiveness. It doesn't mean they're not ever consequences. doesn't mean that even there might not be criminal consequences if someone broke the law in the commission of this. It doesn't mean you, you, know, you have to release them of everything. But these are the four promises you're making. And the truth is, at times this is going to seem beyond our power. To say these things, to do these things, I, I acknowledge this is not easy. Because our heart, is, is, if we've been wounded, it can be really hard. And there's times when, humanly speaking, forgiveness is beyond our power. And it's in those times we need God's help. We need a, a new kind of power to come in. Forgiveness comes from God. And it might mean we need to dwell upon the cross. And what was the cost for our forgiveness? If we know Jesus, then because he, he paid the debt for our sin by being whipped and scourged and, and killed violently on the cross, that's the cost for our forgiveness. If he did that, how can I not be willing to forgive others? That's where the power can come from. Jesus died for my sin. How can I hold their sin against them? I want to close with reading from um, an incident from Corrie ten Boom, who she was a Dutch woman who had been put into a uh, Nazi concentration camp and later um, went around and she survived it and she went around and talking about God's love and forgiveness to others. And, and this is what happened to her once. She says, I was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, a former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to people in Bloomingdale the need to forgive, I kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I, I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer, Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. 
Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed them, overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Brothers and sisters in Christ, is there someone you need to forgive? I want to give you time to talk to God about that. I'm going to just do a moment of silent prayer. And I just want you to do business with God. If there's someone you're holding on resentment and anger towards, own that before God and decide you want to forgive them. Let's let's pray. Father, give us the strength to forgive this person. Give us the strength to lay down our resentment and anger and truly love them as you love them. We need your power to do it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.